We pray every day we come here on Sunday morning for God's Spirit to be alive and, and to work through us and, and to for us to worship Him wholly as He needs to be worshipped. And sometimes um, I feel like, all right, God, where are you at? You know, to want to worship Him as He needs to be worshipped. So I'm thankful that we can gather as a, as a church family and do that. And if you're visiting with us, uh, I hope you're being blessed today already. We haven't even opened up God's Word and we've had the opportunity to worship Him. I'm so thankful for that. Um, if you would, I, I'm going to have you turn your Bibles in a little bit to a passage. But I just want you to think back um, with me to a picture of what is, when I say traditional family, what kind of picture comes to your mind when we think of the traditional family? Because a lot of us are, probably aren't quite sure what a traditional family looks like, Right? Norman Rockwell always, I felt, did a good job of giving us pictures of generations of the past. And, and, um, and some of us out here, you know, this morning, you're thinking, who's Norman Rockwell and what, what are those pictures, right? Uh, us older generations, we understand this. Younger, maybe not so much. But there's one picture I remember Norman Rockwell uh, had, and this is the one that you're seeing right now. Uh, that, that picture of the grandparents and dad and mom and, and the the kids and the grandkids gather around table for dinner. That's what I would say is traditional family right there, right? Some of us long for that. Some of us have that. Some of us have that and we're like, it gets really crazy loud, right? I was talking to my mom this past uh, Monday. We drove to Indiana on Monday and spent a couple of days there. and She said, we're up to 75. I said, what? 70? Are you sure? Don't argue with mom, right? Okay. Yes, 75 between all my, my brothers and sister and their kids. It's 75 of us in the family. So we get together. We can't get together in mom's house anymore. This doesn't happen, okay? It gets a little crazy. But I remember when I was a young boy, each night our family gathered around the dining room table. And, and we joked about this actually with my brother. said, you remember how mom, but she just she emptied out the, the fridge. If there's food in the fridge, it wouldn't be there very long. If everything was spread on the table. Even if we weren't going to eat it, it didn't matter because somebody might want it. I don't know. And it was there. And I remember, you know, we just would sit around the table and we'd eat, we'd laugh, we'd talk. And then when we're done, everybody chipped in. Everybody put food away, everybody washed dishes, everybody put the dishes away, we dried them. And it, it, that's what we did. And then maybe the rest of the evening, depending on the day of the week, depending on what was going on in the season, because my dad was a farmer, so maybe we were back out in the fields, or maybe, you know, in the wintertime it was different, but we would go into the dining room or living room, hang out, play ping pong, watch TV. We would do something as a family together. We ate together, we prayed together, we spent our evenings and weekends together, we went to church together. Um, We made, uh, basically went everywhere together because, well, we only had one car, right? We didn't have five or six cars, Although there was mom, dad, and four brothers and one sister, and by the time I was getting older, sister got married, moved out, brother got married, moved out. But even with multiple people at home, we still had maybe one family car and a farm pickup truck, of course. Right? But that's what we did. It was family, and we loved doing stuff together as a family. But the family traditions of today that, well, we say used to exist in abundance and aren't so much anymore. Some of us really work at trying to do family things, but now the common family is so bombarded with schedules, plural, 
schedules, calendars that are marked up and you can't figure out where's an open day to breathe, right? Multiple jobs, school, school functions. Maybe there's uh, financial pressure or divorce or kids living with separate parents. Multiple cars help create separate paths. So basically people are going in different directions. Parents go one direction while kids go another direction. And some of the kids are even there going opposite directions. Mom and dad possibly going separate directions as well. And the family resides in one house together, but they really aren't the traditional family that we once knew. And it's really different, isn't it? And actually, families rarely spend time together. Even if you are at home at one time and you're in one room, it's even hard to spend time together because even though we, like for our, our family, maybe we've got a bunch of TVs, well, I don't want to watch another Hallmark movie tonight, so... I'm going to go over here and watch something else. Well, the Cubs are losing, so I'm going to the basement to watch something else while you guys watch them lose, okay? Um, we Multiple TVs, multiple directions in the home, too. And it, not so much we could be in the same room with one TV, but thanks to iPads and iPods and iPhones and computers, we could all be sitting in the same room doing five different things. It isn't so much the way it used to be. So it's a challenge. For many of us, game night, let's get the Uno cards out. Dutch Blitz, bring it, right? Skip bow, who's in for that, right? It's a challenge. We need to do game night. We need to do family night. All right, we're all going out together, one place to eat, one vehicle. Let's do it, right? It's a challenge. Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Turn there with me, please. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1, he tells us that in the end times, in the last days, when things are fierce and perilous, and it's tough, he says, you're going to see the deterioration of close families. You're going to see the traditional family slipping away. You're going to see a development occurring in the last days in which families are going to struggle to try to just be in a family. Let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says this, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times for people will love only themselves and their money. It says they will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. We talked about that last week as far as being ungrateful and unthankful, right? They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others who have no self-control. They'll be cruel. They'll hate what is good. They'll betray their friends. They'll be reckless. They'll be puffed up with pride. Love pleasure rather than God. They'll act religious. They will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. We've learned that Paul, what he talks about in this scripture, that in the last days, when it's fierce, mankind, as we go back a few weeks and we talked about this, we're going to be very self-centered. It's going to be about us. We're going to be very materialistic, agreed for money and for things that money can buy. He said that we're going to be very proud as we view ourselves in a higher position than God, so much, though, that basically we talked about situational ethics. Whatever works for me, works for me. Whatever works for you, works for you, because it doesn't matter, because I know what God wants us to do, but that doesn't work so much for me, so I'm going to do my thing. 
That's what he's talking about. And we see that. He said people are not going to need their own directions for living. Or I'm sorry, they're going to use their own directions for living because they don't want to listen to what God says as far as directions for living. They'll disobey their parents. Not only will they not show respect for parents, but no respect for authority. For coaches, for teachers, for their boss, for the principal, for whoever that authority figure is in your life, whatever, right? My mom is 85. She still says whatever. Can you believe that? We're on the phone, we're talking, he goes, yeah, well, anyway, whatever. I'm like, whatever? Mom, how old are you? Anyway. Mankind will be ungrateful and unholy as we talked about last week. This is what's going to happen in the last days. Paul then warns us that mankind will become heartless and unloving. Now, when you look at this unloving, or in some of your scriptures it might say without natural affection, we're thinking, well, unloving, that just means I don't love you anymore. But this word is actually very unique, very different. This unloving actually means without family love. Now the words without natural affection or unloving are translation to Greek word, which is astargos. And I put that word up there on the screen for you because a lot of times I throw these words on you're like, what is, it means nothing, right? But I want you to see the word, okay? Astargos. And here's what happens with Greek. You might have a word, as you see below, um, Star, Stargus, that's S-T-O-R-G-O-S, that's up there, Stargus. And you have the letter A that's put in front of it. Anytime you have the original Greek word and then you have the A put in front of it, it means the opposite. So what does the word Stargus mean? Well, Stargus basically means this. It's, it's a devotion to your family. It's a love for your family. It's an instinctive commitment to family. So when you see that word Stargus, the Greek word in the Bible, if you're reading the Greek, which I don't, okay, but when you see that word pop up, you see the word maybe love, it's like we're talking about a commitment to your family, a love for your family. It's wrapping your arms around that traditional family group and say, I love you so much, nothing's getting away from me, okay? But when you put that A in front of it, affixed to it, the A, astargos, you've got a new word now, which basically means a lack of devotion, a lack of love for your family, a deterioration of the family that's falling apart, it's a disjointed family that has lost its closeness that it once possessed. Opposite directions now. And the word astargus that Paul uses verse could be then referenced to that unloving, non-nurturing, uncaring family environment. It's actually more like a war zone in the house than it is a loving environment. But Paul says this is going to happen in the last days. You're going to see the family deteriorating. They're not going to be so loving towards each other anymore. He goes on then to say that they're going to be slanderous. Now the word slander can also be translated as a truce breaker. So I want you to think about this. This is an unquestionable reference to one who has a truce, a, some kind of covenant, and they break it. A commitment written down, signed, and they break it. They walk away from it. Now, the word's difficult to translate in Greek, but every time you see it, it is described as that kind of breaking of a covenant of some sort due to incompatible differences, or as we would say, irreconcilable, right? I didn't even say that right. Okay. But we cannot reconciliate what we're doing. It's no longer able to come together on something. We're just going to break it apart. We're incompatible. 
And in this verse, Paul just been speaking about deteriorating family relationships. He's saying the family is deteriorating. It's falling apart. Matter of fact, they're slanderous. In other words, there's commitment in this family, a covenant within this family, and it's been broken. It's been a truce. has been broken, a truce breaker. And so a lot of commentators, when they look at this, they say, well, that sounds like divorce. It sounds like Paul saying that divorce is going to be pretty rampant in the last days. And this may be one of the first thoughts, you know, when we say, well, in, the, in a family when somebody's breaking a commitment, that's one of our first thoughts is, well, probably divorce, right? A relationship that was deemed legal by the state is broken. Lacking commitment to work through problems and husbands and wives who are already moving so fast in separate lives, they just continue and just break it off. Because that's easier than maybe coming together and working through it and seeking out a solution to the problem. And what do we see today when it comes to marital relationships? Listen, I do a lot of marriage counseling when it comes to, especially couples that are getting married, so I do marital counseling with them prior. That's one of the rules. Listen, you want me to do your ceremony? We're going to go through some counseling first. And one of my biggest things that I say to young couples is this. Listen, either you're plugged into the church after you get married or not. I'm not going to do your ceremony if you're not going to be a part of the church. You've got to be part of it. If you don't have Christ in your relationship... If you're not going to church after you're married, it's not going to be good. And I really press that upon people. And this past year, after I don't know how many years, of how many ceremonies that I've done, I went back and I look at all the marital relations, the marriages that I've done and uh, been a part of and officiated. And I went back and there have been some that have been divorced along the way. And I look back at the ones who have stayed together and those who divorced. You know what the common factor is in those who got divorced? 100%, by the way. It's not, I mean, the stats are incredible. Those who divorced never ended up going to church together and worshiping together. And it's sad. It's frustrating. Because they did not keep Christ in the middle. They fell apart. I tell couples, you need to make sure. And it isn't just about going to church. It's keeping Christ in the middle of your relationship. I read in a parade magazine last week, um, there's an article on Ben Zobris of the Chicago Cubs and about his marriage relationship. And he's got a thing with his wife. He says, listen, we're only allowed to be apart from each other six days out of the week. That's it. After six days, one of us is flying to see each other. We have a commitment to our marriage. He said, this is why. The divorce rate in the Major League Baseball right now is 84%. 84%. Think about that. You might as well say 9 out of 10 baseball players that are standing up there and married, 9 of them are going to get divorced by the end of the season. Isn't that sad? Gives you a whole new prayer list, doesn't it? When you think about what's going on in, in these kind of relationships and billions of dollars being spent annually in support payments and tens of thousands in professional workers and administrators and counseling and child support arrangements, sadly, divorce is one of the biggest industries in the world today. And some of you in this room have gone through divorce. And you know it's painful. You've been there. And this is just part of the pain that we're going to face in the last days. And knowing that we live in these last days, we who are married, we must, we must stay pure before the Lord. We must stay committed to one another. You must invest in your marital relationship. 
If you're struggling in a marriage relationship, get into God's Word. Allow His Spirit to work in your life. Listen, I, I've shared this before. I'm going to share it again. I want to show you just an interesting stat in my family. We're not perfect, okay? Jenny and I just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Uh, we were pumped about it, excited about it. We actually got away for a couple of days. We, we've never gone anywhere for our anniversary. We really don't do much, okay? And I'm the guy that's up there telling you, invest in your marriage. Invest in your marriage. like, I need to invest in my marriage, right? Or I'm a hypocrite. So we invested in our marriage, and we got away. We went down to Hockey Nails uh, for a couple of days. We discovered that there's no service anywhere, okay? We thought we were in a new land where men don't wear shirts and phones don't work. I mean, it was like, whoa, okay. This is different. I'm not used to it, all right? So I felt like I could just go ahead and walk around with my shirt off, too, in a parking lot somewhere. It's no big deal, right? Um, I did... And when we did have service, all of a sudden my phone blew up. Church uh, softball team, congratulations on two wins Friday night. Awesome, way to go. I got a little text that popped up. Hey, we won. We were 2-0. And I got a church, I got a team picture and it was everything. It was, it was like, oh, awesome, back in land. All right. But it, during that time, you know, Jane and I talked about, I was like, oh, well, that wasn't what I expected. I was like, but she was like, we got away, right? It was like, we did something. We spent time together. And that's important. Our marriage isn't perfect. We've got to work on it. That's why we do the marriage retreats. That's why we do these things. But I want to show you a stat in my family. In my family, uh, my parents were married 64 years. My dad has four brothers and three sisters. My parents, along with five of their siblings, have celebrated 50-plus years of marriage. Six siblings, my dad's side, have been married for over 50 years. When you add up all the years of marriage with my mom and dad and my uncles and aunts, just on that side of the family, okay, there's over 450 years of marriage. That's unheard of. Unheard of. Now, out of all those siblings and 450 years of marriage, there was one divorce and remarried. And then my aunt and uncle got remarried. They'd been married 39 years before my uncle passed away. Now, my family, I've got five siblings. Okay, and including our marriage, Jenny and I, we celebrated 25 years of marriage. We're the last of the six kids to hit 25. Everybody else is 25 and up. Got one brother and sister that's going to be married 50 years here in a few years. And when I look at that, our, all of our years of marriage together was two, 206. So when we were get together on Monday, or I'm sorry, Tuesday, 4th of July, with my mom and all my siblings were there. They got us this uh, little clock with a little name engraved on it, and it was really cool. They said, we do this for every couple. Um, when they hit their 25th. And it's like, oh, I don't remember that. It's like, I didn't, I didn't confess that to my family. I'm confessing it to you. I don't remember ever giving my brothers and sister a clock, okay? Um, but I guess we did. Um, so when they gave it to us, like, remember, will you give one for us? Like, yeah, I don't remember. But anyway, thank you. Um, but we look at those and we celebrate those, those things. Now, did we have divorce in my family? Yes. Um, one of my brothers was divorced and remarried. So we're not exempt from this in family, okay? And is our marriage perfect? No, it's not perfect. But when I look at my family, 450 years, 206 years, over 656 years of marriage in our family, is that something to celebrate? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's just a reminder to me, it's not about setting records, okay? It's like, well, we, got, we can't let everybody down. It's not about that. It's about having a marriage that is God-honoring. It's about having a commitment that I made to my spouse and keeping that commitment. And when times get tough, 
you go to God. Marriage is important. And Paul's saying, listen, in the end times, the family relationship starts to deteriorate. Hold it together. Hold it together. Listen, if you've gone through a divorce and you're currently facing one, God's grace is fully present to restore. He loves you. He cares about you. The wounds that have been inflicted upon you, He wants to heal. He wants to help you. He wants to love on your soul and your children. And with the help of God and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it's possible to fully recover. It is possible to fully recover. God's always present to help those who are in times of need. You just got to call on Him. But see, we have other relationships that are broken as well. It's not just divorce. We have parents who abandon their children. And we have children who disengage themselves from their parents. And we have siblings who won't even talk to each other. And some of you know what I'm talking about. It isn't just a husband and a wife who won't talk to each other anymore. It's brother and sister. It's brother and brother. It's sister and sister. Now I'm going to talk to you. The family deteriorates. And Paul continues to say, this is going to happen. He goes on to say, if you're reading, that there will be false accusers. And the word false accusers in Greek is diabolos. Diabolos. You've maybe seen somebody with a tattoo that says diabolos. Okay? That means devil. If you didn't know that. This also means accuser. It's a word that's translated accuser, slanderer, devil. And Jesus uses this word when he talked about Satan. In John chapter 8, verses 44 and 45, you can go there if you want. Jesus said this about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. From the outset. This is Satan. He's always hated the truth. Think about this. Because there's no truth in him, he hates it. So when he lies, Jesus says, when Satan lies, guess what he's doing? He is consistent with his character. Because he's a liar and he's the father of lies. So when I tell you the truth, you just don't naturally believe me. Jesus having this conversation with religious leaders and they were calling him Satan. He's like, no, you don't understand who Satan is. The father of lies. The big accuser, right? And Paul uses that word to depict a time when people will excessively lie and accuse each other. Do we not live in this time right now? Families deteriorate. Relationships fall apart in the family. People are liars and always making accusations and accusing each other. Do we not see that now? Paul continues in 2 Timothy to warn us that mankind will be cruel, fierce, savage, violent. And this violence is, for the most part, senseless. I read this story back in the 1990s, how an, Ox, an Oxnard man was accused of murdering his roommate because the two of them disagreed over the brand of beer that they were buying. See, the accused man brought home natural light. And the murdered man wanted him to bring home Michelob. And so as he poured the natural light down the kitchen sink in anger, the other man stabbed him and murdered him over beer. We think of ourselves as being more advanced, don't we? We think of ourselves as, listen, we're not savage. We're not brutal. That's so barbaric. We would never do that. But look at what happens. Senseless violence. We're witnesses to violence in multiple fashions. It comes to us from every side. 
it's so hard today to monitor the TV, but if you want to know, one of the stats I just discovered was that by the time a child enters kindergarten, he will, by kindergarten, he will witness 8,000 murders and nearly 100,000 acts of violence on TV. And by 18, they'll witness 800,000 acts of violence and 40,000 murders. That's a lot for our little kids and for our youth, right? It comes right in off the TV, but now we know it isn't just a TV anymore. It comes in on the internet. It comes in on the music we listen to. Whether positive or negative, whatever a person allows to come into their mind and into their eyes and into their ears comes into their soul. It's called garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you bring in usually comes out. Whatever comes in corrupts the heart. And we have to be careful of these kinds of things. And the people that we keep company with. Because just as much as what we watch is an influence in life is the people that we are with that influence our life. And again, I ask you, does any of this sound familiar? The deterioration of the family, the lying, the accusing, the senseless violence. Even go back to what we talked about in the past weeks. You know, you get here and it's almost like, so church, what do we do with all this? And it's like, I'll have to admit, a couple weeks ago it's like, I don't want to preach through this sermon series anymore. It's like depressing, right? It's like, can we talk about something else? Because I really don't want to go through all this. I see it every day. I see it around me. And I don't want to point it out. But let's, okay, let's get through it. Paul pointed out. I'm going to point it out. I pointed it out. There we go. But what does that mean for us today as a church? What do we do with this? I mean, 2,000 years ago in advance, the Holy Spirit, he forecasted this is going to occur in our society at the end of the ages. What do we do with this? It's amazing to read, isn't it? Yet, here we are in his days. But here's the thing. Here's the good news. God's not abandoned us. God has not abandoned us. Repeat after me. God is here. Let me hear you say it again. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that we're not alone, we're not abandoned? God is with us. God is here. We have the Word of God. Let me hear you say Word of God. Grab your Bible, put it in your hands. If you don't have one, if you have one, grab it, okay? Hold this out in front of you. Put your hands on there and just look at this. It's the Word of God. He's spoken to us, right? When God breathes, He breathed life. And He breathed in and gave us His Word. Let me hear you say Word of God. Word of God. God is here. He's given us His Word. We're not alone. And the Holy Spirit, God's given us His very Spirit. When Jesus said, when I'm leaving, I'm giving you one who will walk beside you. Paracletus, the one who's right by your side. The Holy Spirit. He is in you, your guide, your mentor. Let me hear you say, Holy Spirit. We just sing about Holy Spirit come, right? He's here. We have brothers and sisters. Let me hear you say, brothers and sisters. Look around your room. This is your family. And if you're visiting with us today, welcome to the family. We're like any other family, right? We've got our mistakes, our mess-ups, our, our crazies, our funnies, Right? Our quiet, our loud, outspoken people, we got, we got it all. This is family, okay? Get used to it because we'll be together forever, okay? And it's bigger than this. Hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of those who have ever surrendered their life to Christ. 
in eternity with each other. You're not alone. You have God. You have his word. You have his Holy Spirit. We have each other, a community of believers to support when we need it. With all that's God, that God has provided, we can have victory. Let me hear you say victory. victory. Turn to the person next to you, jump up and down, give them a high five, say victory. Just kidding, just kidding. Just, yeah. That's where some of you are like, I am not coming to the church anymore. Okay. So here's the thing I want you to hear, though. When you read through this, it's almost like throwing the towel in despair and say, do you see what's going on? Paul called it. We're seeing it. And it's like, I give up. And you're surrendering. Like, God's saying, no, 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 no. Don't throw in the towel. Do not throw in the towel. It's time for you to throw your hands up in the air and give a shout of victory because God is still on the throne. In the midst of all that we just read and we see, God is still on the throne. And he's here with us. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his brothers and sisters, a community of people who love him. And we should give him praise. So instead of ducking our heads and like, oh, woe is us. Look at this. Lift your head up. Lift your head up and refocus. In the next five, ten minutes as we wrap up this sermon, I want to, we're just going to give a whole new focus now. Okay, we, we've heard the bad news. We see it around us. It's like, God help us with us, right? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. The fifth book in the New Testament. Acts chapter 4. As you turn there with me, um, there's a story that actually took place in the previous chapter, chapter 3. We're not going to... We're not going to read through that, cha- that chapter and that story. You can on your own. But I want to take you to Acts chapter 4, what happened after the story. Because what happened in, in chapter 3, Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple, and there's this lame man by the temple, and he was begging and, and just asking for help. And they're like, hey, silver and gold we don't have, but we do have. We'll give to you in the name of Jesus. We're not going to give you money, but we're going to give you something better. We're going to heal you. And you're going to be healthy and walking again and and by the power of God, the man was healed. And it was an incredible thing. And the focus, though, on this story is it's not on Peter. It's not on John. It's not on the man who was lame and was healed. But it was on the power that took place in that story. And when we look at what happened in that story, there was an explosive display of God's work. And it was something to talk about. And the people did talk about it. They talked about it so much that the authorities did not like all this talk going on about the name of Jesus healing this lame man. So the authorities arrested Peter and John. They brought him before everybody and they said, hey, that's enough. We've heard what's going on and the talk. Look with me in Acts chapter 4. We'll start in verse 16 and read through verse 18. And they're having this conversation here in the authorities, the members of the council. And they said, what should we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they've done a miraculous sign. Everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. Let me hear you say everyone. Everyone. So we can't deny it. Let's say something happened right here in town in Wasion. Okay. Everybody knows about it. And now we're before the court. And they say, well, we can't deny it. Everybody in town's heard about it. Okay. Every newspaper, every social media has gone off. Everyone knows what are we going to do? Verse 17. Well, but perhaps we can stop them from spreading their propaganda. We'll warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name. So they called the apostles back and they told them, don't speak or teach about Jesus anymore. That's a slap in the hand, basically. Okay? They didn't know what to do. Everybody already knew what happened. So they brought them in and they go, just don't talk about Jesus anymore. Okay? 
Isn't that what the world does to us today? I mean, aren't they the ones that walk around saying, shh, be quiet. Don't talk about Jesus. You can't use God's name here. We're going to take Christ out of Christmas. We're not going to talk about God. No, no, no. Happy holidays, not Merry Christmas. We're not bringing up the name of God around here or His Son, Jesus Christ. How can we be an incredible witness for Jesus Christ when we have so much incredible things taken on around us? Give credit where credit is due. Have you ever heard that before? If you're writing a paper, give credit where credit is due. Mark sure you, make sure you write down and put down where you got your notes from. I'm sorry, but when you look around and you see incredible things taking place and you know God's hand is written all over it, give credit where credit is due. Praise God. It's okay to say that out loud. You're just giving credit where credit is due. If I'm attending a concert and, and the band, the orchestra, whoever, just got done playing an incredible song, what are you going to do? Right? You're going to clap. You're going to cheer. If they're really good, you might even stand, give them a standing ovation, right? Isn't it proper that when you've seen something incredible that you respond to it? I believe the appropriate response is to do that. Peter and John are like, (laughs) this guy who couldn't walk, God heals him. By the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Boom, he's walking. Yes, praise God. And there's the appropriate response, right? And the authorities are saying, "Um, don't do that again. Don't be giving God credit. Don't, Don't be mentioning his name. So you're telling me when I see something awesome, I shouldn't applaud the one who did it, right? Look at verse 19 and 20. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop. Let me hear you say cannot stop. Cannot stop. Can't stop. Nope, not happening. We can't stop telling about everything we've seen and heard. The disciples of Jesus saw the power of God displayed and said, Hey, we've got something to talk about and you can't shut me up. Sorry. It was awesome. It was incredible. Cannot quiet me down. There's so many things in conversation today that are negative and degrading, right? You get in a conversation with somebody and a lot of times it just goes south. Degrading, just sad, just disappointing, complaining, right? It happens in conversation all the time, right? As we view the incredible talent and display of God's handiwork, how about we talk about it? How about we reverse that conversation and take it back a different direction? Talk about the glory of God. Talk about what God's doing. Shout praise to Him. Sing a song. God's eternal power and divine nature on display. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says this. For ever since the world was created, God or people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything that God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities. His eternal power. His divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Church, what have you seen that God's created? Let me help you out. Take a look at the screens. What have you seen that God's created? I I, I have to admit, I've never seen this. I'd love to see this. I know it's there. Could you give a shout of praise for that? How about this? Could you bend on a knee and praise God for that? Now that I've seen, Mount Rainier, Mirror Lake, I've taken a few pictures of my own like that. This one was a much better picture than I took, okay? Climb that mountain, beautiful place. Give thanks to God for his creative, mighty power. 
That's God's handiwork right there. When we pray, when we sing, when we give praise, it's like applauding God for a job well done. Way to go, God. This, this is something to talk about. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 111, please. Psalm 111. As you're turning there, James Boyce said this. He's one of my favorite authors. He said, you will become like the God you worship. If you worship a false God, you'll become like your false God. But if you worship the true God of the Bible, you'll become strong, gracious, compassionate, righteous, generous, just, and steadfast as he is. In other words, you become like that which you worship. When we worship idols, when we worship celebrities, when we worship money, when we worship the things of this world, we begin to look like them. But when we worship God, as James Boyce is saying, he said, we become compassionate, we become righteous, we become just and generous and steadfast as he is. In a world that's deteriorating and falling away from God, we need to make sure we're worshiping God, because when you worship God, you become like God. We do not want to become like a world that's unloving, falling apart, family deteriorating, unthankful, selfish, self-centered, materialistic, violent, crude, rude, and just flat out, I don't want to be near you because you stink like garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. I don't want to be like that. I want to be compassionate, righteous, and just. So the question, church, is, in the midst of what's going on in these last days, how about we get our worship in the right direction? Instead of worrying about all this that's going on, let's worship God. Psalm 111 says this. Praise the Lord. I will thank the Lord with all my heart as I meet with godly, his godly people. How amazing are the deeds of the Lord. All who delight in him should ponder them. Everything he does reveals his glory and majesty. His righteousness never fails. He causes us to remember his wonderful works. How gracious... And merciful is our Lord, who gives food to those who fear him. He always remembers his covenant. He's shown his great power to his people by giving them the lands of other nations. All he does is just and good, and all his commandments are trustworthy. They are forever true, to be obeyed faithfully and with integrity. He's paid a full ransom for his people. He has guaranteed his covenant with them forever. What a holy, awe-inspiring name he is. Fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom. And all who obey his commands will grow in wisdom. Praise him forever. This psalm, along with many other psalms, begins with a hallelujah. Big hallelujah, which translated means praise the Lord. Now, I don't know how many of you remember this, but when I grew up in the children's department, we sang a lot of crazy songs. One was hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Oh, you were there too. Okay. I don't remember you in that class, but you remember that song, okay? Yeah, and we split it up like the guys always sat over here and the girls over here. Maybe we were mixed up. Okay, you guys going to be, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And you guys are like, praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord. See, you were there. Awesome. Okay? Now, when we sang that song, we would go back and forth, and our side was like, we are going to be so much louder than them, right? It was a competition. It was like, it wasn't a joyful noise to the Lord. It was a, it was a noise to the Lord, okay? You know what I'm saying? So we're saying, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise ye, Lord, hallelujah. And then on the very last one, when we, just, we just belted it out as loud as we could. We're like, yeah! That was worship, right? 
And a lot of times we were just sort of like, mm. it's like, what if we sang like that all the time? Wouldn't that be crazy? Dave, I'm not asking you to do that song. Please don't do that. But, but anyway, can you remember that? I mean, do you remember also like this call outside the church? Maybe you're like, I don't remember that song, but you do remember this. We've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How about you? Right? Cheerleader fingers. Okay. That's what that was. Okay. Those are the cheerleader fingers. Okay. Remember those? Okay. We've got spirit. Yes, we do. Oh, I'm sorry. I just, I'm not making fun of you. Okay. We've got a cheerleader in the presence. Maybe a couple more. Okay. But why do you do the spirit finger? I, no, okay, never mind. Okay. Okay. So here's the thing, though. Okay. That cheer, right? We've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How about you? Then you go, we got more. We got more. We, right? And then you're like, oh, my goodness. Right? Now, let's take a combination of this, which was really weird. The hallelujah, praise the Lord, and the we got spirit. So it was at this, this big convention in Washington, D.C. Is it evangelism? And it's like, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. I was like, are you kidding me? You just took those two worlds and collided them. I didn't. It was weird. We love him more. We love him more. I'm thinking, okay, now we're competing on who loves Jesus more. It was really weird, okay? But what am I saying about all this? It was the excitement. It was the enthusiasm. It was the, you know what? We've got God's spirit. Now, I'm not saying jump out of your seats and get crazy on me. But what I'm saying is the attention and the direction was not at us. It was at God. It was not chaotic. But it wasn't so much reserved either. It was like, you know what? I want to praise God. And I'm not worried about what you think. And I'm not going to get distractive and cause you to lose focus, but I am going to praise God. I'm going to worship Him. So this psalm jumpstarts our hearts with a quiet, maybe a loud, hallelujah, right? But we move on to what the psalm contains. It's a message about praising God. Real quick here, let me wrap this up. Real quick, how do we praise God? Here's three things we must have when we come to worship. One is the right attitude. The psalmist is not going to ask others to do something that he himself will not do. I'm not going to ask you to worship if I'm not worshiping. I'm not going to ask you to serve if I'm not serving. Okay? And this psalmist says, listen, I'm not going to ask you to worship unless I am worshiping, and I'm worship. So I'm going to ask you to worship with me. And he says, I will. That should be in like all caps. I will. Praise the Lord. I'm going to take the initiative. I'm going to set the tone. Listen, please don't ever come into this church service saying, well, I hope Pastor Dave brings it today. I hope Pastor Dave plays my favorite song. Please don't ever do that because it's not about you, okay? When we come in here, we have the right attitude, realizing that worship begins in the worshiper's heart. I will praise God today. Whatever song is played, whatever volume it's at, whatever tone is made, I will praise the Lord today. That's the first thing, having the right attitude. And the second thing is then having a full commitment. Full commitment, all my heart, wholehearted devotion, no way half commitment. So Saturday night, how are you doing in preparation for Sunday morning? Because I know this, I can't worship on Sunday morning wholeheartedly if my Saturday night was a wreck. If I'm not getting my rest. There's times I'm going to bed before everybody else in my house and it's like, I feel like a party pooper, but I know this, I want my Sunday morning to be awesome. So I can't have my Saturday night be a mess. I know no athlete would stay up late the night before they're going to compete the next morning. I know no student is going to stay up late and not study if they've got a test the next morning. They'll get their rest. They'll be prepared. As a worshiper, as we are worship, we prepare to come in. We have the right attitude. We have full commitment. And that third thing is we're going to meet with godly people. 
This, this, this is public, okay? Uh, worship is with others. Can I worship at home? Can I worship in my car? Can I worship on the golf course? Can I worship uh, somewhere else? Yeah, you can. But you know the best place to worship? is with others, with the church family. That's the best place to worship. Not saying you can't worship in all those other places. I'm just saying it's a lot better with others. Did you ever build a bonfire? In a, in, I mean, just with two, two logs? That's not a bonfire. Okay? That's a little fire. You can maybe roast one marshmallow on it. I prefer like 50 logs. Maybe a tree. Okay? But anyway, just big, right? Big flame. Oh, now we're all roasted marshmallows and hot dogs and maybe even a steak, okay? With an extended rod because it's really, it's hot, right? That's the church. You have the church gathered together in worship. That's a bonfire. When I'm worshiping at home, which I can worship at home, I can worship in my car, I can, okay? But that's just a couple logs, okay? It's cozy, it's good, it's all good. But this is better. That's the worship that the psalmists talk about in 111. And that's the worship team to, to come on up here. There's a lot of reasons to give praise. And the psalmist goes on. And he talks about that. You know, he talks about why we praise God, his handiwork. We showed those pictures of creation. There's a lot of things to be thankful for, right? Or his provision. You wake up in the morning, you have food, you had a place to sleep, you have clothes. God's provided. Praise God. How about salvation? He's given you new life in Jesus Christ. That's worth praising God for. There are multiple things we can praise God for. So this morning when you came in, you maybe came in and you didn't have something going all right in your life, but you know what? Let's go to the flip side of that. This might not be going right in your life, but you know what? All this is. You praise God for that today. The attitude of worship is incredible. In these last days, we must truly learn to focus on God and praise Him. Yes, all these bad things are happening, but God is still good. His Word is before us, His Spirit with us, with us, and our brothers and sisters are together. It's going to be okay. Praise Him. Praise Him. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God You are. I thank You, Lord, for Your Word. I thank You for this church. I thank You we can get together and praise You. And sing to you. So God, it's not about, oh, I hope this last song is a good one. God, whatever the song is, it's for you. I'm singing it for you. I, wanna, I just want to thank you, God, for all that you've given me, for your handiwork, for the creation I've seen, for the storms and for the sunshine, for the flowers, for the new life and plants that have grown, for the mountains, for the oceans. God, I thank you for the things that you've provided in my life, for my family, for my friends for this church, for chairs to sit in, for a table to eat at, for food to put on that table. I thank you for the breath that I, the air that I can breathe, and I thank you for the clothes that I have to wear. I thank you for a vehicle to get me from place to place and gas to put in and in, in money to pay for that. God, you've blessed me so much. Thank you, God. But thank you, God, for salvation. Thank you for sending your son as a ransom. As Psalm 111 says, a ransom. You came your son, Jesus Christ, to seek and save souls. What a mission. And I'm one of those. You saved me. You saved me from hell. You let me spend eternity in heaven in your presence. Thank you. I don't deserve it. Thank you. For this, we praise you, God. For all these things, we praise you.
What an awesome God you are. We sing to you now, Lord, in our name and prayer.